you do not simply wave the white flag. And so what instead I ask people to do is to continue to fight on because what other option do we have? And to rally the troops, to join forces with other like-minded people and to come up and out of the trenches to march on because we really have no other option and we should be incredibly inspired and proud to have the bravery to do so. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's a great, it's a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Climactic, your story on climate change. I'm your host, Mark Spencer. This week we speak to not one, but two amazing figures in the climate change movement. The first is a marine scientist, who's also a dedicated marine debris campaigner and activist, working with the Boomerang Alliance, an Australian-wide nonprofit focused on waste and the epidemic of single-use plastics. The second is fast becoming one of the leading science communicators of our time, who in the course of just 2018 has appeared in three different documentaries, tackling the issue of marine debris and ocean plastic. So that makes this my first interview with not just one, but two scientists. Normally I'd be quite intimidated by this, but luckily both Jen and Annette are old friends. Jen was actually Annette's supervisor through her PhD. So we all had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot out of this episode, and I hope you get a lot out of it too. Because Jen Lavers is quite a hero to Catherine and Mel from Trash Bags on Tour, they actually got a couple of their questions in that I was able to ask Jen. And that's something I want to do a lot more in future. When I get a big-name guest on the show, I want to let you all know as far in advance as possible— So if you have any questions you'd like me to ask them, we can get those in. So here we are, without further ado, a conversation with Annette Finger and Jennifer Lavers. I've not seen the film Blue. I've not seen the other films you've been in yet. I'm myself quite new to sustainability and don't know much about marine science or ecology work. Can you give a a brief introduction to who you are and, and the work you've done? I kind of almost, not really, but sort of stumbled into marine science a little bit by accident. I always knew I would work on animals, but never really knew I would do marine science. And I, for my PhD, spent four years in the Canadian subarctic. And that was a transformational moment for me that really completely flipped my life on its head and determined what my life was going to be all about from that moment. And that was seabirds and islands. And I've really never turned back. And since then, I've kind of island hopped all over the place and become this kind of uh, marine scientist, as they say. But it's really quite funny because for being a marine scientist, I think the thing that defines me more than anything is my complete lack of time spent in the marine environment, which is a a bit unusual. Uh, I don't actually spend much time on boats or even out on the open ocean or anything like that. I use uh, seabirds as uh, like a sentinel species or a, a canary in the coal mine. I allow marine species to kind of go out and do the hard work for me. And then I monitor those animals. And by sampling those animals, they can kind of tell me about what's happening out there in the environment. That's the kind of the focus of so much of what I do now. 
And another big focus of that is is marine pollution. So that's probably what most people know me for. And thankfully, that's led into three uh, kind of major documentaries, some smaller things. And two of them that are uh, quite well known are A Plastic Ocean uh, and Blue. Blue was filmed here in Australia and is now touring around. And another one which is about to come to Australia's shores kind of in the next couple of months is called Drowning in Plastic. And that was filmed with the BBC. And I think these are really useful because it helps people really relate with the issue in a really visual kind of guttural sense. And it also takes you on a bit of a journey so that you don't just learn about what's happening to one species or to one community or even to one country. But it really helps put the plastics issue in perspective. And that is that it is global. It is literally from the Arctic to the Antarctic, from the surface layers of the ocean right down to the deepest up the bottom. And in saying that, we've all contributed to the problem, which means therefore we all have a role to play in cleaning it up. And we should all kind of go out and see at least kind of one of these kinds of documentaries because hidden in amongst all the information, the figures and facts and things like that is always the, what can I do about it? How can I feel inspired and how can I get engaged and what kind of changes to my behavior can I implement? And documentaries are a really good way nowadays. Increasingly, they incorporate that to find that kind of information and to get and get a connection to the issue. Yeah. A visual and experienced connection to the issue, which I think is crucial for us to do anything about it. If you're connected to it, you care, and uh, and then you're more likely to get that feedback loop of, okay, I'm saying no straw things, or I'm remembering to say no straw things, and uh, it's because I know about the issue and I care about the issue, and that's why I do it. And I might even take someone who would never go and see a film like that and drag him or along and watch it. So, yeah, I, I think that the connection, this is what movies, what, what your medium does is uh, getting people involved in it and uh, forming a connection. Well, it sounds like you, you really have happened on to quite an incredible space to be working in. You've managed to, to find something that, as you say, that we are all a part of that touches every one of our lives, whether or not we spend time in the oceans or not, because all of our lives, you don't have to draw out many connections to get to the sea, to get to ocean life, whether it's the food we eat or trips we take, assuming this lovely beach is going to be lovely and that the sea life is going to be there. I asked this question to, to Haiti, and I'm kind of jumping in the, the deep end, sort of into some, some hard-hitting stuff straight away, but the show was definitely set up to be about climate change. Myself, personally, in starting to do that, I personally have this really big, massive dose of fear about climate change, and like I, th- I think that climate change is my number one existential terror, and I look at something like marine debris, and I can definitely see the importance. I can really freak out about microplastics in seafood, ending up in humans, destruction of ecosystems and colony collapses and, and terrible stuff. It's really visceral, but I feel like it's a, I feel like to me, it's a secondary problem or it's a symptom of the same problem that's causing climate change. But it's not something that if we fixed marine plastic, we would also be fixing climate change. It kind of feels like the other half of an issue. So I'm kind of curious if, if you feel like marine debris is is the most pressing thing we're facing or if it is a pressing thing? I think there's some things we can definitely say about marine plastics or even freshwater plastics, the plastics issue in general. And there's a lot of things that we 
can't quite say yet. What we can say is that the rate of plastics going into the ocean is pretty phenomenal. The numbers are enormous. And the amount of plastic already in the ocean is also, these are these are huge numbers. They're what I call big data. They're, the numbers are so big that we struggle to really kind of even put them in perspective. So as of 2014, the total amount of plastic in the surface layer of the ocean was somewhere in the range of about 5 trillion pieces of plastic. And so when I'm kind of talking with people about this, I say, what's a billion? What's a trillion? For some people, it's it's fair game to say, are we even aware of whether or not a billion or a trillion is bigger? Which is the bigger number? And so uh, Annette and I, were when we were writing our recent paper together, we're trying to kind of grapple with this and, and try to make it more relatable and help people kind of put this in the broader perspective within plastics itself as an issue, but also within kind of the the global perspective of all the other pressures that we face. What is this monster called? plastic pollution? How bad is it really? So there's there's lots of numbers where we can kind of put some bounds on it and, and start to deal with it. The, I, think, I think the elephant in the room with, when it comes to plastics is the stuff that we don't yet know. So these are things like nanoplastics and a lot of the chemicals that are adhered to the surface of the plastic. How that that interacts with animals when they ingest it, how much is there, the range or diversity of negative consequences that that can potentially have to an animal. We are literally at the tip of the iceberg in describing when and where and how much that happens and what happens. And when we as scientists tend to look at these things, we look at them in isolation. So for the handful of studies that we currently have, where we look at, let's say, for example, the relationship between a bird that ingests some plastic from the ocean and the concentration of, let's say, mercury in its tissue, because mercury is a big baddie that we we don't want in a bird. We just focus on mercury, either because it's easy to just look at one thing, or maybe we have limited time or funding or these kinds of things. But in reality, that animal is unlikely to be facing the pressure from just mercury at any given time, it's also going to be struggling with a whole other range of things. And so I say this because what that means is we don't actually understand the complexities of what's happening. And this is true for climate change. This is very much the case for plastics. Our understanding of what's going on with the plastic dynamics is in its infancy. And so to write it off as the lesser of two evils is potentially premature, possibly maybe a bit naive, because possibly we're, we're playing with something, we're playing with fire that could potentially be far more dangerous than we currently understand it to be. Just because we don't know everything about it doesn't actually mean that it's safe. That's where I start to kind of say, there's no denying that we don't have as much data as we wish that we had, but I think we need to adopt the precautionary approach, which says, Whatever data we currently have, it's if it's suggesting that we should be alarmed, if it's suggesting of a particular trend, for example, like plastic in the ocean is increasing, the number of species impacted is increasing, and that we should be far more careful than we currently are, then perhaps we should be far more careful than we currently are. Fantastic response. So with what I'm saying being pretty much the corollary of that being like, hey, we know how bad global warming is, we should focus everything on this and not care so much about this other issue that is, as you say, might be just as bad or may not be the lesser of two evils at all. If you think about the ocean, 
taking up two-thirds of the Earth's surface and plastic being pervasive, as Jen has said, from, you know, all through all levels of the food chain. If we are stuffing up and, you know, we have found plastic nanopieces in tiny, tiny algae and uh, zooplankton, if we are stuffing up the food chain of the ocean, which is responsible for sequestering carbon, that has an impact on climate change. I don't, I'm not saying forget about climate change and fix the ocean and get rid of the plastic and sort out the issue of source reduction and all of that. Obviously, you, you know, climate change, we've, the reports just come out. We've got 12 years, right? It's very, very pressing, but we need to start making massive inroads with the plastic pollution because if we, we are stuffing up our ocean at the moment. If you have a chance and, and watch Blue, it's uh, it's brought out pretty well in there. So even if we get our carbon emissions under control, if we don't reduce plastic going into the oceans, we're still very much in peril. So I think both these issues are very, very important. And I think maybe the plastic pollution issue is getting more traction the EU having banned or uh, saying they are going to ban single-use plastics in the future, that's really positive. You know, the the Blue Planet series um, by Sir David Attenborough has brought it up a bit more into people's minds that uh, probably wouldn't know about it. But uh, I, I still think it, it is the less recognised of two massive, massive global issues that need addressing. This is probably just my own perspective. I'm not sure how many people listening would agree, but I felt like over the last year or two, ocean plastics has become a very predominant issue. There are a lot of people talking about the issue now, and we are getting shows like Foreign Waste. Yeah, funnily enough, that's exactly when I started working on the issue, so maybe. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've been actively campaigning for a bit over two years, so that's probably all my work. Very good. Yes, unsung hero. Jen, I I know that People working in in climate change circles, climate change activism and everything, we get frustrated sometimes when we think that this is such a big multi-tendril problem with a really simple cause behind it of greenhouse gases caused by a small handful of main sources. It's even more kind of limited in its causes with the marine debris issue where it's plastic that doesn't belong in the oceans being introduced into a foreign environment it never belonged in in the first place is it kind of when you zoom out and think about all the damage and all the devastation caused by one man-made material being introduced into an ecosystem does it kind of bother you with how simple that problem is that we're we're putting plastic into the ocean where it doesn't belong absolutely but it's a, that's a tough one to talk about because if we do kind of zoom out and just talk about it as a singular pollutant, and in many ways it kind of is, it's, it's, it's a polymer, it's plastics, it's let's literally just talk about this one thing. We could talk about it for hours, about the intricacies of what it does and how it gets there. And there really are actually quite a diverse array of sources and how it fragments and how it navigates around the world and how long it lasts and all of these kinds of things. But it is just one type of pollutant. It's a physical 
pollutant and it's a visible pollutant. And it's actually, I consider myself really lucky to work on this particular pollutant. I, I often take a moment to reflect on what I kind of call my forefathers. And I don't mean like those who wrote the constitution way back when, um, but my forefathers were, I think, the climate change scientists of kind of maybe the late 60s and and the certainly in the 70s who against all odds had to be the first incredibly bold and brave souls to come forward and say to the global community there's this pollutant out there and it's going to transform our world and to deal with it you need to change almost every aspect of how you currently live your life and all future generations need to change. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. And for me to explain it to you is incredibly complex, the chemistry of it. And I think about these people that I call my forefathers, these brave scientists who had minimal financial backing. Their institutions probably didn't even really back them at the time. The government certainly didn't back them. Nobody even understood them. And yet they stood up and said these things brought this information to the world because that's a scientist. That's what we're told to do. That's what we're trained to do. And I think about the challenges that they face, the criticism that they face, that they still face. Some of them are still alive. And I think about some of the criticism that I faced over the last kind of 15 odd years that I've worked on this issue and the challenges that we currently face with this issue as a global scientific community kind of trying to move things forward. And we work on a physical pollutant that you can see. And if you really wanted to, you could taste it and you could smell it as well. And it's pretty much about as visible as you can imagine. When you go to a beach and it's covered in plastic, it literally looks like a leprechaun vomited. Sorry for the analogy. But even with it being that visible, that confronting, we still get some critics who say, this is not a priority issue. It can wait. I just don't simply don't believe that the the effects that scientists are talking about are nearly as severe as they're likely to be. All of these kinds of kind of critics and, and naysayers. And I find it really, really remarkable. And it can make for some pretty tough days. But I think sometimes we just have to reflect on where we've come from and, and uh, focus on where we need to go. The, the history of being a scientist has been remarkably turbulent with not very many days of peace amongst persecution and people ignoring you or calling you wrong or crazy or think about Rachel Carson with the silent spring and the criticism that she faced yeah and yet we do we continue to do what we do I don't know what it is that makes a scientist I'm I'm, I'm actually I'm going to contradict you Jen because I'm thinking maybe because it's it's not visible like the the silent spring the you know the stuff the the chemicals that they use what was it the I'm too tired DDT. now. The DDT. <laughs> and uh, it's because it's invisible, it can be more scary, do you think? And the, the stuff, well, it looks like sand. You can hardly tell. You know, the noodles look like little sand grains, so maybe it's not that bad. Well, you know, the birds eat it, they poop it out. What's the big deal with it? And the big deal with it is the invisible stuff again which we need to communicate mm. it's the the chemicals that are adhered to the surface and that are get digested and and the the nanoparticles and the impact the invisible and incredibly hard to track impacts of those chemicals that are they shouldn't be 
in the animal and they are in the animal and they're getting magnified up the um, up the food chain and to the impacts that are you know even harder to trace further up I told Kat and Mel from Trash Bags on Tour, I said, you know, if you have any questions for, for Jen and Annette, and and they, they were very clever. They they played the game very well. And they said, yeah, what are their thoughts on ecotourism? Because this has been my exposure to, to beach cleans. It's been my exposure to a lot of this topic, something as innocuous as, I'm going to go on a bus tour down the Great Ocean Road. And part of that happens to be a beach clean and a talk about zero waste, about source reduction, about Tangaroa Blue, about the Australian Marine Debris Database. So for me personally, it's done a lot of good. But I was wondering from your two perspectives, what are the the benefits and maybe drawbacks of this kind of ecotourism model of, of reaching people? Or have you thought much about it? Two things have really resonated with me. And one is meeting the girls the other day and doing the trash bags on tour and chatting with them about their kind of uh, business model, I guess you could say. And I was really struck by how creative the girls had got with uh, basically taking tourists on a bit of a, a car-based tour and then getting them to clean beaches along the way. Uh, cleaning beaches is by no means new and a car-based tour is also equally not based new, uh, not new. But I hadn't really seen the two melded together. And I thought, what a fantastic opportunity because everything that I've seen is that there is a real thriving and rapidly increasing demand for these kinds of like interactive opportunities. People, a lot of people don't just want to go on vacation anymore. They still want to go on vacation and relax and chill out, but they want to go give back. And I think increasingly we have to give back for each and everything that we do. We need to consider our footprint and, and factor in some kind of offset. Even if it's not like for like, we need to be doing something. And so I think this provides the absolute perfect opportunity. And what a what possibly better thing could you do than hang out with a couple of really amazing and enthusiastic girls and go clean one of Australia's gorgeous beaches. And also working on Lord Howe Island, I've been going to to and from Lord Howe Island, one of Australia's most iconic tourist destinations, kind of the Galapagos of Australia for the last 11 years. And Lord Howe Island has always been known for its incredible vistas and its amazing bird life. It's one of the most diverse bird colonies in all of Australia. But it's also equally becoming known for being an eco-tourism destination. And that's because the tours that are now being offered are amazing, diverse and amazing. So you can now go on vacation on Lord Howe Island and you can go on a weeding tour and remove invasive weeds. You can go on a birding tour and do some amazing stuff with some of the local bird species and even help with some of the research. Sometimes it's even mine. And you can actually, there's a marine debris week where you can sign up and go on a week long tour on Lord Howe Island where you go and do all the normal tourist stuff that you do. But in between that, you go and do various marine debris based surveys. You count the debris, you sort it, you do transects and all kinds of things. And you learn some skills along the way and you contribute to various data sets. And these are enormously popular on Lord Howe Island. They book out months and months in advance. And I think that speaks to the demand for this. People want these kinds of activities. And it's been really interesting speaking with the the main person who runs a lot of these tours on Lord Howe Island, who's the incredible Ian Hutton at the Lord Howe Island Museum, about 
some of the conversations he's been having with other locals on the island who want to transition their local businesses to become eco on the island. Not necessarily running tours, but just having the business operate in a more eco way. Initially, they're somewhat resistant to this because they think it's going to be this massive undertaking with this huge outlay of expense of new infrastructure and all these kinds of things. And Ian gave me this fabulous example of just how simple it can be. And this was an actual conversation that he had with the local cafe on the island. It was as simple as getting the local cafe on the island to stop serving the butter that they give with your amazing morning banana bread, not in a little plastic container anymore, but to cut off a little nicely shaped square of butter and put it in a little dish. And when Ian explained to the cafe owners that this was putting you on the path to becoming eco, and it was literally small changes like this. It wasn't some grand sweeping thing. I think that was also a real light bulb moment for everyone on the island. But equally, it was also a light bulb moment for me because I had also not thought of things that way. So I think anyone who's listening, who's going on their own journey down this road, there's definitely lots of big changes that we can all make and sometimes need to make. But we can always start small with a low hanging fruit and kind of re-envision our day-to-day lives and look for those quick changes that often don't cost a thing. And those are hugely sustaining as soon as you've made one of those changes and think, oh, wow, I can do this. And I've made a dent already, even in a small thing. Yeah. That was brilliant. Um, I will say with, with trash bags on tour, it was one of the first things I noticed when I went on my first one. Yeah, this is great. I'm doing a good thing, but I'm on a diesel bus. So like I'm polluting while I'm also like I'm on this, this vehicle based tour doing a good thing. Yes, the emissions are being put out by the bus, but. As soon as I I mentioned that, Kat and Mel were like, oh, well, we are offsetting. Like, we do use this company, Greenfleet, to offset the emissions of the bus. I was like, yeah, you guys should say that, like, straight off the bat. As soon as people get on the bus, it's going to be someone like me that's just, like, looking for, not even looking to nitpick, but as soon as they realize, like, wait, does this make sense, what I'm doing? They're going to want to know. So, Well, that you're helping them hone their sales pitch. That's right. No, live feedback. Um, they, they did say, especially that they would love to join you on Lord Howe Island at some point. So I just had to get that in there as well. So I get that right. a lot. There's a yeah. long queue, but right. uh, I'm pretty wowed by the girls. So they might, they might fall somewhere near the top. Although I think Ooh. Annette might have to try and trump them. Yeah. She's, she's, she's been in the queue for a while. There you go. Take a trio. That's fine. Yeah. Very good. Hey, well, do you have any thoughts on sort of that subject? Yes, I think it uh, wraps in nicely with what I said earlier, positive messaging. Because you you're on holiday, you you're having a good time, you're seeing some sights, you you know taking in some things that you hadn't experienced before, and you're cleaning up a beach. How awesome is this? Mm-hmm. With some nice people, because it usually when you're going on these tours, you know you're going to be kind of finding your tribe. You know, if that is something you if you want to do something, then you're having people around you that are um, of the similar mindset. And um, yeah, that's it's really positive. I was struggling to think of what positive messages might be around marine debris campaigning because it's it's a desire just to protect what's already there, something that people already kind of take for granted. It's like, how, how do you make keeping everything as it is sound like mm. inspiring and motivating and urgent? But then it is, it's going on a trip like that 
or if you're not able to do that, watching a documentary. And you can see, well, this island, because of the currents, is clean. Debris aren't washing up here. And this beach around the Cape, because of the tides, is covered in plastic every day. And it's disgusting. Mm. You're just, okay, now I'm really motivated because I want the beautiful beach. Mm. And isn't that just painfully obvious? We all want that to be the case. Yeah. And that could be huge motivation to change a lot of stuff about our lives that is actively harming. Yes, and if we do beach cleans and we analyze what we find and we put the data into AMD, mm-hmm. which is the Australian Marine Debris Initiative, initiative, initiative which is Haiti's Tangaroa Blue Initiative, then it's it's not just a drop in the ocean. It is contributing to lawmakers mm-hmm. and it is helping campaigners like myself and researchers like Jen to get the message further out there and to yeah work towards a solution which will ultimately be source reduction mm-hmm. and uh, if you go further back than that we need to look at uh, product stewardship to prevent little silly things like little soy fishies even to be designed so we started pretty heavy with kind of the reality of where things are at and then into the the weeds a little bit on on what the role of science is and we're kind of realizing that the role of science to understand a problem well enough and then tell people it's a problem has kind of been done the science is saying we have a massive problem here one that we don't fully understand yet but we understand well enough to be taking very seriously so we had a bit of fun talking about media and communicating all this stuff and then ecotourism and how do we actually motivate people but i'm curious for you both here what does motivate you on your average day or or what gets you out of a rut when you are in a bit of a rough patch what allows you to keep going in this field well for me it's what i've talked about earlier it's the incredibly beautiful people that i meet in my work and then there's the politicians. No, I'm joking. You might have to edit that out. <laughs> no, definitely leave that in. <laughs> leave that in. Some people that I talk to, uh, it can be a bit frustrating. Certainly in the morning, starting up Facebook and reading all the things that have been posted, you know, we've got 12 years to do something about climate change and uh, we're finding plastics in our poop. You know, that... Those mornings can be getting a bit tough to motivate myself. But as I said, I work with incredibly enthusiastic and uh, inspiring creative people like the girls from Trash Bags on Tour. Big shout out. So that is what gets me motivated, uh, interactions with those people that are pulling in the right direction with me. Also, uh, a good friend of mine, when I'm really, really down, I call her up and she reminds me of, we're both massive fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the spin-off Angel. And uh, she always tells me this, let's see if I get this line together. There's a line in the last season which goes something like that. When nothing you do matters then all that matters is what you do. Was that the quote? Something like that. That sounds brilliant. Yes, even when things are stuffed, it really matters that we do something and um, do it with a heart, with your full heart invested in it and uh, do take breaks. I've just been to the bush for a whole week without any contact to any media 
So that was really beautiful and getting connected to things that I love doing. That's very wonderful, replicable advice. Yeah. So, gosh, yeah, it's a tough one. There's been this new term coined, which I think speaks volumes of of, of what we all face, and it's called ecological grief. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of reflective of, of what we're all grappling with. A lot of us are really dealing with nowadays. And I find that really sad. But it is it is really important to find that voice that we can tell ourselves and, and, and talk to one another to to keep ourselves motivated. And so I often get asked that question of how do I, for example, go to Lord Howe Island year after year and, and see what's happening to the shearwaters and pull 100, 200, 300 pieces of plastic out of young birds and, and keep going? Or how do I go to these incredibly remote, far-flung corners of the earth and just everywhere I go find copious amounts of plastic? How does one not just want to kind of throw in the towel? And so I I had to find a way to verbalize that that actually made sense to me and also maybe made sense to other people. And and I came up with an analogy and I don't know why it's a military analogy because I don't come from a military background at all, but but it works. And so so here goes. It's in our society day to day, we tend to cherish, hold up, value those who, when you're down in the trenches and the war is all but lost, those are the ones who fight on because they believe in what they believe in. They're, they're true to their principles and they truly will not be swayed. And so that's how I feel about marine plastics. That's how I feel about the environment. That's, that's, those are my principles that even though sometimes I feel like our destiny is set or maybe the war is lost or whatever words you choose to describe it, you do not simply wave the white flag. And so what instead I ask people to do is to continue to fight on because what other option do we have? And to rally the troops, to join forces with other like-minded people and to come up and out of the trenches and, uh, to march on because we really have no other option and we should be incredibly inspired and proud to have the bravery to do so. Jen, taking it out there with some truly inspiring words and I was, and I felt so lucky to get to spend some time talking to Annette and Jen at Annette's home that night. So if you get the chance to check out the film Blue, which is traveling around Australia at the moment, or if you have Netflix, you can catch A Plastic Ocean anytime. And then coming soon from the BBC, we have Drowning in Plastic, all three starring Jennifer Lavers. For more of Annette's work, well, she is active all over Victoria at the moment, pushing for a container deposit scheme. Now, some of you may know this already, but Victoria is the only mainland state in Australia not to have a container deposit scheme. And she has directly inspired me to get involved in that fight as well. If you enjoyed this episode, consider telling a friend. Word of mouth is hugely important to new shows like ours. And if you could pass it along to someone you think would like it, that would be fantastic. Or if you can't think of anyone to tell, if you could leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that would really help other people find the show. Once again, thanks to our guests. I've been your host, Mark Spencer. Thank you to co-founder Rich Bowden, producer Caleb Fidicaro, designer Abigail Hawkins, composer Greg Grassi, and Senior Advisor Gretchen Miller. On behalf of the whole team, thank you so much for listening, and have a great week.
The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.